This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jill Stoffer, Associate Professor and Director of Peace, Justice, and Human Rights at Haverford College. Her book, Ethical Loneliness, The Injustice of Not Being Heard, is just out in paperback from Columbia University Press. In Ethical Loneliness, Jill Stoffer argues that survivors of unjust treatment and dehumanization can experience further harm when individuals and institutions will not or cannot hear the survivors' claims about what they suffered and what they are owed for having suffered. She calls this further harm ethical loneliness. With Stoffer's analysis, the harm of ethical loneliness can lead us to rethink how we understand responsibility for harm, the work of repair, the role of retribution in repair, and how we are constituted as subjects such that we are capable of striving to undo unjust deeds, even mass atrocities. Focused on hearing and what practices of hearing justice demands, Stoffer looks to survivors' stories to analyze how the harm of ethical loneliness can be inflicted, even by people with intentions to help and hear survivors. She then shows how revisionary and reparative work can be done to hear those stories with an ear to how the world may need to change in light of survivors' claims. Uh, hello and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so will you tell us a bit about yourself, um, your background as a philosopher and your interests and how you came to write this particular book? Well, I suppose the disciplinary identification that most ac <laughs> accurately <laughs> describes me as philosopher, but I've always sought to do interdisciplinary work, uh, mostly because mm -hmm. I think mo the problems I'm interested in can't be solved by the approach of only one discipline. But I myself have found the most fruitful inspiration for my own writing in continental philosophers like Emmanuel Levinas and Nietzsche, although the book also engages with Eve Sedgwick's essay on paranoid and reparative reading and Jean Amory's writings on life as a survivor of concentration camps, scholars from many disciplines, and various stories told by survivors of harm, and it treats all of these materials as equal. I think writing the book taught me a method. Uh, the method is to allow the stories to tell me how to use the philosophies I had in mind, rather than using philosophies to circumscribe what the stories could tell. And I think I might have learned that lesson, at least in part from my time on the board of Voice of Witness, which is an oral history book series that publishes the stories of people most affected by human rights crises in their own words. I became attentive to all the baggage a listener can bring to a story and how that baggage can sometimes lead to a failure to hear what is being said. The book also grew out of my experience of teaching in an interdisciplinary justice-oriented program. I taught a class called Forgiveness, Mourning, and Mercy in Law and Politics, and I was struck by how my students were really sure that forgiveness could only be good and resentment could only be bad. And I was searching for a way to show them that it matters what you're asking people to forgive, and it matters what conditions are on the ground where forgiveness is supposed to take place. And that's how I found the work of Jean Amory, who taught me a lot about the possibilities and dangers of resentment. Um, and then I think a third thing that animated the book was the whole field of transitional justice studies. I just wanted to counter the idea that trials and truth commissions get the job of recovery from harm done on their own. Yeah. Um, and that led you to this concept of ethical loneliness, that the, the class and the background. Yeah. Okay. Um, Would you explain that concept for us? Yeah. So it's a way of reflecting on self-formation. Um, ethical loneliness, mm -hmm. as, I, as I define it in the book, is the experience of being abandoned by humanity. So maybe through mass violence or longstanding oppression um, and surviving that and then finding that no one will listen to your testimony about what happened on your terms. It's a, about a kind of social abandonment that sometimes goes unseen 
when we spend too much time looking at obvious violent harms and not enough time attending to our own implication in structures that impose silences on people. One of the points in the book is that this kind of harm can be imposed by people trying to do good things, people who want to help, want to listen, but fail to do so well. There's lots of reasons why this might happen. A lawyer is trained to hear the facts of the case. A truth commissioner might be interested in uncovering gross human rights abuses, but not the daily effects of those. An interviewer wanting to find stories about human resilience rather than hearing about the parts of a self that maybe didn't survive a past harm might only hear, only listen for resilience. So we're all trained to look and listen in certain ways, and those ways may render us unable to hear some kinds of harms. Also, sometimes we might be unable to hear because it's actually too scary. It threatens a a cherished idea of what the world is like to hear what human beings will at times do to one another. And I wanted the term ethical loneliness to open up a site where we would be willing to think about this problem um, and, and also maybe train ourselves to listen for our own failures of hearing. For you, this is an ethical concept. It's ethical loneliness. Uh, it seems to me throughout the book that it's a deeply political concept as well, that what you're pointing at are these structures um, that, that lead to s- subject formation, but that aren't in some way individualistic. Uh, so will you talk about that connection between the ethical and the political in the concept of ethical loneliness? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose it is political, but I don't think I was thinking about it as specifically political uh, when I was writing. I was trying to figure out a way of writing about subject formation that would enable someone to begin to rethink the stories they tell themselves about the types of of self, the way that the stories that we all tell ourselves about the types of selves we are. I think that there is a real way that... um, we can go wrong with those. And if you start with just the stories you tell yourself that may or may not be true, then that opens up a possibility of um, thinking about stories in general and how we, if we narrate the world differently, different types of possibilities um, become possible. Obviously that has political ramifications, but in terms of the connection between political and ethical, um, I think I just wanted to let other people make that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. So would you talk more about, you said this method of listening to stories and letting the method come from listening to the stories. You mentioned that a little bit earlier. Would you talk about how important stories are in this book? Yeah. So stories function in at least two ways in the book. Um, and like I just said, I begin the book with a reflection on the stories we tell ourselves about the kinds of selves we are, uh, because my sense is that those stories are powerful and that they're often not fully true for better and for worse. So Maybe I tell myself I'm a good singer, but I'm not. Or maybe I tell my, I'm myself I'm a bad writer when I'm actually pretty good at it. Or I could tell myself I don't deserve love when, of course, that's not true. Um, if we start with these obvious flaws in the stories we tell to ourselves, then maybe it becomes easier to see that there's all kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about what we owe to other people that might also need to be reconsidered. Um, so I think uh, I was trying to have us see the ways in which we might benefit from a breakdown in our inherited beliefs about how we come to bear responsibility for something, be more honest about what makes violent structures flourish. It's not just the fact that there are individual people who do bad things. Um, So the first function of stories is to get us to think about self-formation. But I also tell a fair number of stories in the book. Um, And I do my best to allow stories of failed hearing to make the argument for me. So there's a chapter where I make a philosophical reading of, of um, self-formation, but then there's also a chapter where I tell, I, I just allow a lot of stories to get the, the job done for me. So stories from truth commissions, courts of law, archives of testimony, and so on. Many sites designed for hearing where hearing can also fail in ways that further harm people who have already been made vulnerable by how the world is built. Yeah, I was struck by the story you told about um, Hannah, one of the people who was telling the story of her how she survived the Holocaust, and the way you analyze how the interviewers try to drive her towards a certain narration of her own experience, um, and she keeps resisting that. Do you mind talking about that case a little bit? No, um, it's a really, you know, I... Um... I first read about this case in a book by Lawrence Langer, um, 
And then I was driven to go to the um, Fortunoff archive of, of Holocaust testimony at Yale to actually watch the tapes myself. Um, and I was drawn by how powerful her, her spirit was. She really wanted us to understand that there were parts of her that did not survive the experience, even though she had survived and she had um, gone on to live a rich life. And the two of the, she was interviewed more than once, and two of the interviews seemed to be really kind of wanting to find stories of human resilience, you know, the type of thing that makes a feel-good movie. And that was there, but that wasn't the only thing was there that was there. And it was striking to me that they actually, they seemed unable to hear the parts where that wasn't what was being talked about. And it seems to me that it, in order to understand her story and also to understand what to do with a world that produces stories like that, you really have to be able to hear both parts. Yeah. Um, and this, so this I think goes into a question about sovereignty. It's a slight change in direction, but I think what you were just talking about, about not wanting or not being able to hear about the parts of of someone who didn't survive an experience, I think does go to this uh, point. You keep, you make return to, I think several times in the book about the sovereignty of the subject or what sovereignty is for a subject. So will you talk a little bit about how the book deals with the concept of sovereignty and how you're seeking, I think, to make us think differently about sovereignty? Yeah. So that's linked to the stuff about self-formation that I'm interested in um, revising. Uh, so the story about personal autonomy or personal sovereignty is a big inheritance for anybody raised in Western democracies, perhaps especially in the U.S. The idea that meaningful freedom is tied to my capacity to be self-determining, that's a pretty powerful one. And of course, it matters as an idea. Self-determination matters. But I wanted to show that autonomy is not an inborn capacity of human beings, but rather a human invention. Um, and this is the important part, autonomy or sovereignty is really only possible when people build spaces where it is possible. So this thing, sovereignty, that we think of as being independent actually is dependent. It depends on other people honoring it as a thing. So if I have meaningful autonomy, it's because I reside in a place and a time where other people honor that and let me live. Um, maybe if others didn't honor my autonomy, I could still have something like it because I'm not utterly determined by surround by my surroundings. But Jean Amory's writings about what he lost when he was tortured and interned in concentration camps show us the limits of what autonomy can mean in a place where no one honors it. He writes about losing the parts of his self that kind of until those conditions were imposed on him, he thought that these parts of him, his self were only his own. Um, but he discovered that they actually relied on other human beings. And I think that's an important lesson and could be a really hard one to hear. Some of us are lucky enough to have no personal experience of the fact that human beings can destroy the selves of other human beings. And I wanted to make that point so we could think carefully about what's owed in the wake of that kind of harm. Yeah, and in your cha your chapter on repair, this is the, the second chapter, you describe this chapter as, as an excursus or a digression from your argument, but it's there that you talk about trials and truth commissions, which I think for a lot of people they would think a trial or a truth commission would be a good place for that repair to happen that you were just talking about. Uh, but you say, in a way, talking about trials and truth commissions is, is tangential or not central to your argument. And I think this is really important for the arc of your argument. So will you describe or will you talk about why it is that trials and truth commissions don't just kind of fall into place as uh, as the reparative answer to the kind of problem that you've been diagnosing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have told me they really like that chapter, but I myself was really torn about it. I still am. Like, part, uh, I think it's a good piece of writing, but I also think it does digress from what I wanted to accomplish with the book. So in a perfect world, I could write a book about recovery from violence without addressing trials and truth commissions. But in this world where there are so many scholars and practitioners whose faith in trials and truth commissions and transitional justice is unwavering. I felt like I had to address what those forms can and cannot get for us. I mean, I don't have any desire to dismiss their importance, uh, trials and truth commissions. Each can get some things done that we really need to have done in the wake of mass violence or longstanding oppression. They can uncover stories and harms that were silenced by an oppressive regime. They can establish the truth of what happened using rigorous standards of legal proof so that harms are harder to deny. They can sometimes punish wrongdoers, 
They can sometimes give survivors a sense that justice will now be done and that what happened in the past won't be allowed to repeat. And all of that stuff matters. But they're always going to leave a lot undone. And it's my sense that ethical loneliness as a concept points to some of that. It helps us look at the field of harm differently, possibly to get a fuller picture of what response to harm must be. So, for instance, if we're talking about a situation where ethnic cleansing or genocide or longstanding racism or other forms of historic oppression are part of the background, then what is needed includes long-term commitment to making concrete steps towards social transformation away from the false stories and embedded hatreds and unjust discriminations that made the harms possible. And it can't just be about victims and perpetrators. It has to be about masses of people bystanders and beneficiaries, people who did nothing to change a toxic social situation and thus bear some responsibility for harms that, that the situation enabled. I think we need a broader sense of responsibility than what a court of law can grant to us. So <clears throat> I'm always trying to be as fair as possible. Like a court of law can find individuals guilty of having committed past harms with willful intent, but we need a form of responsibility that transcends worrying about blame for what we willfully set out to do. Um, so much of what causes longstanding harm isn't possible without all the people standing by, not intending harm, but facilitating it anyway, and thinking that they're off the hook because they've never set out to harm anyone. And I just wanted to point out that as long as we limit ourselves to that idea, that legal culpability idea, we won't be able to manage meaningful transformation of how people live together. So the idea of ethical loneliness, um, well, I wanted to get people to admit that each of us has to bear a lot of non-legal responsibility for how the world is. Um, worlds get built by how people live in them, and it's always possible to live in them differently. So there's a way in which trials and truth commissions could be a story we tell ourselves that turns us away from what's actually happening. They could, not only are they a practice, but they're also a form of storytelling that we do about harm. Yeah, I think this is definitely an issue with international criminal justice currently and the International Criminal Court. I mean, anybody in, who from the various African countries where these cases are currently um, focused will tell you that the case, these cases aren't going to solve their problems. But my fear is that the Western world thinks that the court is solving problems, mm. that, it, that, that law can't solve. Right, that it's done once the trial or the truth commission is done. Yeah, no, no need to look there anymore. So I, I think this then brings us to the point in the book where you begin to turn towards a different form of hearing, what you call um, reparative hearing. And it's this distinction set up by uh, Eve Sedgwick about reading between reparative and paranoid reading. And you develop an argument about reparative hearing, uh, contra par a paranoid hearing, that in which even silence can be heard reparatively. So will you talk about that turn in your book where you begin to make that distinction and then what reparative hearing is and how even silence can be heard reparatively? If Eve, if Eve Sedgwick were here, she would probably say that I've used her distinction for my own purposes rather than hers. I'm, I'm sure that's true. For me, what matters about the difference between paranoid and reparative reader, reading is related to world building. A paranoid reader knows that the world is full of harm and corruption and so is never surprised to hear that it is. So that reader structures their experience of the world so that nothing takes them by surprise. The past, the present, and the future are largely already known. A paranoid reader might think that simply uncovering the truth of harms gets something done, but Sedgwick points out that that's not true. Sometimes just uncovering a harm doesn't even help. Whereas a reparative reader is open to surprise, to the kind of unwelcome, sometimes unwelcome situation that they, might, that they may not already have at hand all the tools or knowledge they need to understand what they're hearing. They may need to be unsettled, to have their world shaken a bit in order to hear what's being said. And that means that for a reparative reader, all moments in time are open to the possibility um, of revision rather than being already known. So if you think about the book as being about institutions designed for hearing, where hearing fails, Sedgwick's distinction starts to, to do its work. A paranoid reader will find plenty of ways to confirm the belief that the world is and has been unjust, but that doesn't set up a different possible future. A reparative reader will more likely be able to 
listen to her own failure, listen for her own failures of hearing. And that might help shed light on what would need to be done to fix what's broken and prevent future occurrences of harm. Um, in terms of like what re reparative hearing would be important as a way out of ethical loneliness, I think I'm just going to read a quote from Sedgwick that I, that I use in the book because it probably says it better than I could. <clears throat> okay. Quote, um, because the reader has room to realize that the future may be different from the present, it is also possible for her to, to entertain the pro profoundly painful, profoundly relieving, ethically crucial possibilities as that the past, in turn, could have happened differently from, from the way it actually did. End of quote. And I think that kind of possibility of revising the meaning of all moments in time, past, present, and future, is key to understanding kind of what a survivor of harm needs. This I saw this often in uh, quotations from Amari that you gave, where he would talk about the desiring even the wrongdoer to wish the deed undone. And that seems the kind of reparative it's we, where we revise. It's not that we say it didn't happen, uh, but that we wish it hadn't happened, that we wish it undone. Yeah. I mean, if you think about every... So one, I'm persuaded by Nietzsche that it's not good to want the past to be other than what it was, because that's something that, that that's an impossibility that wastes your will. But anyone who has a past knows that the, what, the way the past resonates in the present moment can change over time. And one of the things I wanted to show is that for a survivor of violence, it's going to matter whether they're living with people who won't admit what happened was wrong versus if they're living near people who admit that it should never have happened and are committed to not allowing it to happen again. Um, that type of, that type of being able to allow the past to be past or even to be, you know, thought of differently from somebody who, for whom it hasn't been allowed to be past because it doesn't seem to have ended. You know, that stuff matters. It's interesting because the, the paranoid hearer uh, might admit, right, that something happened but the way in which they are admitting something happened, I guess this returns to to perhaps the interview with Hannah, the Fortunoff interview with Hannah. It wasn't that the interviewers weren't admitting that something terrible happened. It's that they wanted to, um, I don't know, encapsulate that story into a story of resilience and not allow themselves to be, to be shaken and unsettled uh, in ways that might have led them to think differently about human capabilities or what needs to change in their own communities. Yeah. And another way of thinking about it is to, um, to put it in the frame of George Yancey, who would sit, call it a failure to tarry. In his book, Look a White, he has a chapter called Tarrying with the Opaque and Embedded White Racist Self, where he tries to get people to stay with what's uncomfortable about the privilege of white supremacy, rather than always saying, well, how do I fix it? Um, you know, stay with the own the damage that that you cause in, in the world by the way that you inhabit it um these listeners had the good intention of wanting to show oh look it's possible to survive this but they weren't tarrying with the parts that it, that if you really want to understand the story show that you don't maybe some parts of you don't get out intact and it seems to me that was something you talk about this particular case of the pectal shields. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly. Is it pectal? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, so you talk about the pectal shields case. And one thing that was interesting in that, I, I want you to first just describe it a little bit, but then it seems like the anthropologist who was asked to make a determination in that case about who, who the shields belong to was able to, Terry with her own, um, the damage that she did in the way that she heard the case initially, that she did go back and do uh, sort of revisionary or reparative work. But So will you describe that case? And then, um, and it, it also goes to this point about reparative hearing about of silence. Yeah. So this is a, this is a case um, under the rubric of the um, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which is called NAGPRA. Um, it happened in Utah. It's a case of three uh, indigenous shields that were found by a family and then housed in a local museum for a long time. And then 
Um, they sought uh, they sought to repatriate them to the tribes who originally owned them, and that set off a dispute about what the original ownership would be. Uh, that involved a number of different uh, indigenous groups, including the Navajo and the uh, Ute and Paiute. Um, and uh, it ended up being a dispute where um, the Navajo had a per persuasive story to tell that um, adhered to what we expect a story to do. It had agency and character, and it um, answered the question of why the shields had been found where they found. Um, whereas the Utes and the Paiutes uh, said that they they couldn't, um, that these were objects that could not be owned and that they weren't able to tell the story of why because it would violate uh, cultural beliefs to, to tell the story to people who aren't, a, who aren't authorized to hear it. Um, and this set up a situation where um, at first the, the archaeologists judging the case thought that, the, that the, what the Utes and Paiutes had offered as evidence just was not good evidence, right? They weren't willing to tell a story. They weren't able to say where the shields come from, came from. Um, and so the case was decided in favor of the Navajo Nation. Um, and later the um, archaeologist came to see that it was a more complex story about the work that silence does uh, and what stories can be told in what settings and what it means to think that there are objects that cannot be owned uh, that hadn't originally been you know, possible for her to understand this. Uh, she came to understand later after the decision for the case had been made. Um, an interesting thing about this story is that it's actually uh, somewhat unrelated. It's a good story about why it's good to let yourself go to conference panels uh, that aren't central to your research. Because I was at an interdisciplinary law conference, and I saw that there was a panel of indigenous scholars and anthropologists and archaeologists talking about a NAGPRA case from Utah. And I went to the panel, even though I really only knew what NAGPRA stood for and nothing else. And I became so fascinated with the case that I ended up researching it and writing a section on it for the book. And then while writing that section, I saw, found a footnote mentioning another case, which en ended up becoming uh, part of the subject of the book that I'm currently writing. So you kind of never know how you're going to end up with your next intellectual inspiration. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, yeah, and that case seems actually so important to your argument. Uh, yeah, that was a lucky, that was a lucky panel. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to ask you in a few minutes about, about your new book. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a little pin in that conversation because I'm really curious about um, where you're going with that. Um, to return to ethical loneliness in the, the chapter that you titled revision, you talk about resentment and the struggle after harm. Um, and you talk about it in terms of safety, the importance of resentment for safety. And so I want you to talk about that link. And there was a, a quotation from um, Jean-Anne-Marie that I thought was really important to this that you use. Uh, you quote him saying, uh, resentment is not anesthesia, but retaliation. His bid for the kind of security that allows a person to be a person to take existence for granted Resentment is his path out of ethical loneliness. Sorry, that's not a quote from him, but this is you're glossing his view of resentment there. Um, and so I'm really curious about this relationship between resentment and, and safety and how that is resentment can be not just a way out of ethical loneliness, but a way into world building. Yeah, so uh, there's this tendency when we discuss how affect intersects with recovery from harm to assume that forgiveness is positive and resentment is negative. Like forgiveness and resentment are both kind of quasi-cognitive concepts that have a lot of affect bound up in them. And I wanted to complicate um, making one, one of them the good guy and one of them the bad guy. So um, as I say in the book, like on the one hand, a disposition to forgive might reveal a generous spirit or a healed psyche, but it also might reveal a damaged self. It's unable to demand that violations of the self be redressed. 
but on the other hand, an insistent re resentment might show us a victim's vengeful obstinacy, or it might correspond to a justified refusal to forgive in a social situation where reasonable conditions for recovery have not been met. So neither forgiveness nor resentment is an unqualified good or bad thing. Um, so think of it this way. What are the conditions in which forgiveness makes sense? One of the features of ethical loneliness as a concept is that it reflects a situation where people who have been harmed have also not been heard. If someone who has survived a genocide or longstanding oppression, um, what is it that they're going to need to move forward? Many things, uh, but at a bare minimum, they're going to need to feel safe in the present moment. They're going to need to know that the, that the people around them, other victims, at least some of the perpetrators, the bystanders and beneficiaries, that, they're all, that they all agree that what happened should not have happened and will not be allowed to happen again. Um, if you don't have those conditions um, and you don't have a reasonable expectation of safety, what good does forgiveness do? Or how could you even really feel like granting it? In, in conditions like that, it makes sense to resent what happened. And resentment might even play an important political role of marking things as unresolved. It becomes a political demand that the past still has to be reckoned with in the right way. So that quote about Amory that you mention, uh, that's when in the book I'm trying to show that Amory's resentment is not what Nietzsche would call resentiment, right? It's, it's, it isn't a way of saying no to life by wanting to change the past. It's Amory's way of saying yes to, to life by demanding reasonable conditions in which he might live a future. So that kind of resentment can help build a world if you can find a good road out of it at some point. Right. And this, it seems, part of, part of the reason you had to write the chapter on trials and truth commissions um, is your concern that they don't do that, right? That they don't have... Um, they're not venues for resentment in a way. Um, they can't hear it well. They're not, yeah, they're not a place where the complexity of um, what an inheritance of harm uh, is can be aired. So I'm curious, in the, the class you taught where students tended to think that forgiveness was an unqualified good and resentment an unqualified bad, which seems to me to be reflective of a, a quite hegemonic story, um, at least told in the United States about the nature of forgiveness and resentment. I'm curious if, if you had resistors in that class, if you had people who didn't subscribe to that story or in, in the time that you're working on the book and talking about it, if you did find that some people, um, you know, not people who work on resentment or resentiment, um, but, but folks who are coming in sort of as students do fresh to the ideas and are willing to report just what they think on first on first reading, um, if you did encounter people who who would resist that kind of story about both forgiveness and resentment? Well, not very many. And I think this is a function of where I teach. I teach at a historic Quaker small liberal arts college with a social justice mission and in a justice-oriented program. I think I have a lot of... I, my classes attract a lot of students who actively want to make the world a better place. And I think amongst that crowd of people, there um, has, this might be changing, but when I first started teaching this class, I think definitely a commitment to the transformative power of forgiveness was pretty strong. I think, um, you know, that was between five and 10 years ago that I started teaching the class and it, things have changed a little in terms of our awareness of the way that um, South Africa's problems were not solved by a truth commission and, and things like that uh, helps to make the case for me. But also really having them read Jean Amory's essay on resentments. That essay is um, interestingly divisive of students, those who will accept it and those who, who think um, that he can't possibly be right. And I'm also thinking about the work of, um, for instance, Black Lives Matter um, to resist forgiveness is the first thing that has to be said in a conflict or that kind of, yeah. So I was just thinking about the other changes that have occurred since you began working on this project. Yeah. Um, we are definitely at a cultural moment where forgiveness is, uh, not the first course for many social movements. And, uh, I think that that is mostly good in terms of things like Black Lives Matter and, uh, Me Too, 
you know, um, when you forgive too readily, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that what, it, what has happened and what the lingering harms are has been addressed. The thing is, and I want to be sure I say this, that when forgiveness works, when someone can actually feel it and, and offer it, it is a really amazing transfer for transformational person for the person, trans, transformational thing for the person who does it and potentially for the person who receives it. So we don't want to overlook that. Right. Yeah. It's not now forgiveness is an unqualified bad and resentment is an unqualified good. But Right. We don't want to just flip it over. Right. Right. Um, and it seems to me that the work of your book is actually asking for that much more complex negotiation and the possibility that uh, someone who demand, makes demands of resentment could come to forgive. Um, but some you talk about sometimes what happens is that their life becomes just slightly more livable through a process. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's unsatisfying when you say that in the book, right? Like it's not, that's not what you want for somebody. You don't want them to go through something like apartheid and just for their life to become slightly more livable post-apartheid, right? You want them to be um, in a new political order where they can fully be um, everything they were ever meant to be or whoever they want to be. But you, you do talk about, um, that just sort of those incremental or very small gains um, and how important they can be for survivors. Most of us don't end up getting uh, utopian outcomes, but little things make a huge difference in, uh, like you said, making a life livable. And I, I wonder though, if it's, if that's one of the stories that we have to become capable of accepting, there's a strong, I think, urge to say, you know, um, the social movement happened, all the uh, problems were solved, and now we're a better nation or, or something like this. Yeah, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want the, the humans to get rid of the utopian um, aspiration. Uh, but I think maybe the problem is wanting stories to be concluded too early, you know, saying, oh, so this happened, and then this happened, and, and the problem was solved. Um, Maybe if we were able to spend more time tarrying with problems and recognizing that to a certain extent, certain types of uh, certain forms of social abandonment, certain types of longstanding harm, you don't solve that overnight. It actually ends up being a lifelong project of trying to fix what needs to be fixed, help those who, who need help, do your best to undo your own implication and ongoing harm. This isn't just something you can do once and have it and declare it done. And I think that's the depressing part, right? For some people, like, <laughs> right. oh, I wanted you to just tell me what I could do to, to fix this. Well, the thing you could do is just actually work at it for the rest of your life. Right. You know? And perhaps for generations. Yeah. More than your life. Right. right. Um, so in your last chapter, um, Dessert, you talk about retribution. And it seems like what you're working on in this chapter is revising or opening up or returning to a much broader understanding of retribution um, than is currently dominant. And it, just to give what I think the dominant understanding of retribution is, is something like the state should punish wrongdoers. So people who commit harm should be punished by the state and that that's what retribution means. Um, so would you talk a little bit about what you're doing with retribution and why you chose that concept uh, to, to talk about a way out of ethical loneliness. Yeah. Um, so this also has to do with affect. Uh, many systems and theories of justice acknowledge the human desire for retribution. But feeling something is not the same as doing something. Um, so like I said earlier, I am persuaded by Nietzsche that revenge thinking is harmful to the self, right? It's a way of dwelling in the past. And yet when people use Nietzsche or others to talk about the dangers of revenge talk, they sometimes fail to ask why so many feel that impulse in the wake of grave harm. So many people feel an inclination towards retribution, but having a feeling is not the same as acting on a feeling. And Acting on a feeling doesn't necessarily equate to reacting with violence. As, Mar as Margaret Urban Walker points out, for people who've been harmed or, or who are angry about harm, it matters what paths are open for them to pursue. So responses may be ugly or they may be reparative, 
depending in part about what, on what the surrounding social conditions are. Violence is one path, but other paths that might be a form of um, retributive thinking include, like, what, what am I going to do to get back at what happened? Activism, social organizing, solidarity with other oppressed groups, complex allyship. Anger does not always lead to a desire for revenge. And retributive impulses do not always end in violence. But what is retribution for? Um, If we think that that retribution accomplishes something, it's probably because we think people ought to be held accountable for harming others. But if retribution also means, you know, etymologically, uh, giving to each what is their own or setting up an imbalance aright, then it, it can be about more than giving perpetrators their just desserts. In any situation of grave and complex or long-standing harm, a lot of different parties are going to be owed a lot of different kinds of recompense. An offender might deserve punishment. A victim might deserve reparation. An offender might also deserve reparation. The, situa- the surrounding community may also deserve or owe some kind of recompense. Part of the reason that a more expansive view of retribution has disappeared from our vocabulary, I think, is that it doesn't suit state power to recognize that each of us has our own powers of response to harm. On top of that, as a culture, we've given over our definitions of right, wrong, and responsibility to law so that it can be hard to imagine a responsibility that's not related to legal culpability. So that's something I'm trying to get us all to think more about. And it, it does point to a way in which we are autonomous, right? We're all capable of responses not prescribed to us by state power even if our responses might be influenced by our our surroundings. So we don't have to wait for state power to fix things for us. We've got the power to create structures within our communities that do what law can't do. So I thought discussing a broader definition of desert or retribution could help to illustrate the benefits of taking seriously the power that all of us have to build worlds together with others. So, okay, so that I see as your critique of of state power is political, right? That the ethical loneliness is pointing towards this critique of, of certain political structures. So I think that helps um, also to clarify that link in that is throughout the book about, um, about the Western legal tradition or what you call Western legalism. Um, so you point out that legal remedies after mass atrocities um, can only ever involve a few people. So you talked about, for instance, um, child soldiers in Uganda, uh, in that conflict and in that um, on generational um, harm, only a few people are ever going to be put on trial or face any kind of consequences. And so there's a lot of room for people who survived that experience to uh, feel like their harms have gone unaddressed. Um, and so your critique of of legalism is also is tightly bound, I think, to your understanding of subjectivity and the way you're trying to open up um, or help us think a new subjectivity. Um, so I'm wondering, this is all a long setup for asking you about um, about your optimism that Western legal principles, norms, practices can be revised in ways that make them more effective at addressing ethical loneliness if you think that process of revision is is possible or it can be revised um, in the kind of radical ways I think that you're pointing to them needing to be revised. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if law can be revised that radically. Um, and I, I can say two slightly different things about that. So one, it would be good if Um, more people understood the limits to what law can do in response to complex harms and thus stopped thinking that once a a trial is over, something has been fixed. Something very small has been fixed, but the real work work remains and it was never going to be accomplished by legal institutions anyway. So if we admit that, we can turn to the work of figuring out what else needs to be done. Like that's not an original idea. Lots of people know that because they've lived it. Part two of my response about law's revisability is that maybe some of law's function could be re- some of their some of law's functions could be revised to be more responsive. Uh, my friend Mark Drumble, who published an article in the London Review of International Law called "Victims Who Victimize," 
uh, in that article, he suggests that whenever international criminal law is faced of a case is faced with a case where a perpetrator is also a victim, and the crimes covered by the case have complex causes, then maybe law should have an expressive function rather than a punitive one. And what he means is, why not use the courtroom as a space to figure out what really happened and what really happened beyond what one kind of individually culpable person did. So find out what created the conditions where people made the choices they made or were faced with only bad choices to be made. What kinds of harms prevailed? What kinds of responses would be adequate to repair what's broken? What do the people most affected by the harms think need to be, what do they think needs to be repaired? What would help stop similar harms from being undertaken? So if law had an expressive function, we could use complex cases to clarify what went wrong and do a lot more than put a complicated perpetrator in jail. And that strikes me as an interesting possibility. But also from what I know about international criminal law and its lawyers and judges, it's unlikely to happen anytime soon. But this, ex this expressive function is at work in some possibilities in local jurisdictions around things like restorative justice. You know, so if you focus on harms and how to fix them, rather than on wrongs and how to punish them, that's a way forward. And there is some space within law for that, but, you know, legal training uh, mil militates against that. And there's also good reason for law to be the more kind of neutral system that it is. So um, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. You were, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, I'm in Colorado and Colorado is having a discussion right now about, making possession of drugs um, a misdemeanor, any kind of drug, just possession of it being a misdemeanor rather than a felony for some classes of drugs. Uh, and the people who are fighting that the most are, are prosecutors who say, it's not that we want to send people to jail or to prison, but we need that stick. We need to be able to say, if you don't get your act together, we're going to send you to jail or prison. Uh, and so it's not, it's, it, so they say, at least, it's not that they want people in jail or prison, but they need that story to be able to tell that story to people who have, um, who, you know, are up for a drug possession case. Uh, so it's interesting, I, as you were talking about the stories that law tells or legal training tells, just the resistance here to something like um, that change to law in part is is told as a story about how to help people who have a drug problem. As if deterrence was uh, a really persuasive way uh, to deal with someone who's got a drug problem. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So we didn't have research on that. Right. Yeah. But that is, um, that is a not surprising way for a prosecutor to think. And this seems to go back to your point about stories and about how things are heard and that um, legal training and especially the different avenues people can take through the legal mechanisms we currently have can train them to hear. In yeah. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people who do a, a good job within um, a legal system do a good job because they've taken their training really seriously. That training always makes them see some things better than other things. And so it might be interesting to also ask what types of changes to legal education might allow people to think outside the box more often. Um, we're getting we're getting close to the end of our time for the interview, um, so I just want to ask one quick follow up about that about prisons, and then I want to turn to to your new work. Um, so it's interesting to think about opening up legal training to think differently about these cases that people are encountering. But in your book, you also talk about prisons as a, a site. That that um, is generative of, of ethical loneliness. So I, would you just talk about that a little bit? Um, and then again, I suppose your optimism about being able to, to change that system um, to, to make it into a different sort of site, to something that didn't generate ethical loneliness. Well, I mean, truth be told, I would just rather that we didn't have prisons. Um, I think that there are ways to handle um, social harm that don't rely on locking people away, or if they do, is certainly not at, at the rate that we do in this country. Um, but, uh, you know, given that we're probably not going to change the retributive impulse uh, anytime soon, um, 
decriminalizing a lot of stuff that isn't causing, um, you know, harm to a lot of people would be a good way to go. Getting a handle on just how racist uh, the justice system is in terms of who ends up in prison and how. Um, but yeah, in terms of prison as a site of ethical loneliness, um, I actually, uh, my book was read by a group of um, prisoners uh, at a medium security prison in Maryland. And then I went to discuss it with them and we, um, they all felt seen by the analysis that they, they said, this was my life before I got to prison. And it's definitely my life here where you've been, um, you've fallen prey to harms and then no one cares to hear what, how you would analyze them. Uh, and in some ways they, um, it was one of the best, uh, group, it was one of the best discussions about the book I'd ever had in terms of the really kind of difficult and probing questions that they asked. Um, was that through, was that like a um, inside out program or some kind of? Yeah, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Tim Stock, who teaches at Salisbury University, uh, runs a philosophy reading group uh, in a prison nearby, and he invited me to uh, come and discuss my book with them. Ah, uh, what an opportunity! Oh yeah, I'm so glad I got to do it. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to turn now to talk about what you're working on. I saw on your faculty page that the proposed title for your next book is "Lapse Time: Interruption, Resistance, and in International Law and the Settler Colonial State." So I was wondering. You said earlier the Pechtel Shields case. There was a footnote there that led you, or informed this new project. So will you talk about your next project and um, did it stem from this project and how did it? Yeah, um, I'm writing a book about the relation of time to law. Um, I had originally thought that ethical loneliness would have a chapter that was a phenomenology of time passing in a courtroom because I've spent the last six years spending a fair amount of time watching international criminal trials during the summer. Uh, that chapter, for some reason, keeps getting um, delayed. It's um, but so it didn't end up in ethical loneliness and it'll probably end up in this project, but I'm looking at a few different legal cases where if we think of the case as being about time instead of law or as being about time, in addition to being about law, certain aspects of the case make more sense or certain truths otherwise hidden become visible. So one case is a case called Delgamuk v. British Columbia, uh, that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, so from a Western legalist standpoint, the case is about who has title to a tract of land in British Columbia, land that has never been ceded by its indigenous inhabitants. But from a broader standpoint, the case is about the different ways the two parties to the case experience the passing of time, tell history, and record important cultural events, rules, and practices. So on the one hand, British Columbia and Canada and all of their lawyers think time passes in a linear way, and that history is the history of Canada, and that truths get stored in written documents. Whereas, on the other hand, uh, the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en peoples, who are the plaintiffs in the case, think that time's passing is more complicated than linear time, and that even if we limit it to a linear scale, it's in the thousands rather than the hundreds of years. And for them, the history of what is currently called Canada is a blip on the radar of their history. And their truths are stored in a combination of stories, songs, and material objects. So imagine a judge trained in settler colonial Western legalism listening to an oral narrative about a bear with unusual powers and being told that it's title to land. And you'll start to see why the case is interesting. Um, one huge ethical problem is that though the case is about who has jurisdiction over the land, Canada claims the jurisdiction to decide the case even though the land in question has never been ceded to Canada. So that's, um, these are moments when Western law's own mythologies become visible. And so I'm hoping to show that and to open up some interesting ways to consider how what we think about time influences what we'll accept as a persuasive story. I'm also hoping to show that lapse, um, I'm calling something lapse, something miss missing from a picture or a timeline is a feature of settler colonial truth. We're all trained to see some things, but not others. But and this is similar to the ethical loneliness point. With any training, we can learn to see otherwise. So that's the hopeful part. Um, if we have time, I could talk about one of the other cases that I'm working on and what they have to do with each other. I would love for you to, yeah. Okay. 
Another case that I'm working on, also I mentioned in Ethical Loneliness, it's the prosecutor versus Dominic Ongwen at the International Criminal Court. Ongwen is an ex-child soldier who was abducted at age 10 and brutally indoctrinated into a violent way of life. Then he rose up the chain of command of the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda. And now he is at the International Criminal Court charged with 70 crimes against humanity and war crimes, including murder, attacking civilians, torture, sexual slavery. He's also a victim of some of the same crimes he's charged with, like abduction, enslavement, forced conscription of children. So time enters into this case in at least two ways. One is that the prosecution's idea about what human aging is, is distressingly simplistic. They think that since they haven't charged Ongwen with anything he did before the age of 18, no ethical questions arise about charging children with crimes. But how do we think someone ends up being responsible at 18? It's as if the prosecutor thinks that it's the mere passing of time that does that. Um, whereas I suspect most people listening to this will agree with me that it's the conditions given leading up to age 18 that matter. So I want to discuss how complicated aging is for human agency and for time in general. For instance, for any of us, we find time in aging, by which I mean aging is something that happens to us that we don't experience happening, and yet you continually find that it has already happened to you when you look in the mirror one day. So we're passive with, with regard to it, and it acts on, on us, and each of us is a bodily archive of time's passage. So it's too simple to say that 18 equals mature, but it's also too simple to say that children don't have agency. And I want to kind of use some of the things happening in this case to complicate our ideas about that by discussing how time and aging interact in ways that are culturally variable. But a second aspect of time at work in this case is simply because it's a legal trial and thus chuck chock full of questions and answers, it gives me an opportunity to take what I've learned from Levinas about the temporal aspect of questions and put it to use. So for Levinas, a question opens up a space between the self and other, self and other, in the very act of expecting a response. As such, it's a form of world building. But there are different ways to pose questions. Posing a question might reveal what is by only expecting an answer it already knows or it might push interlocutors to revise what is. Uh, Levinas counsels us to, quish, to question the first attitude in order to open ourselves up to the second, so that we recognize that posing a question doesn't only indicate somebody's search for an answer, nor a desire to reveal the truth, but it also points to the need that any individual has of response from others. So a question always involves us in both ethics and time. Ethics as response and time as the interval between question and response. So go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm wrapped. <laughs> so for, for Levinas, this interval points us to two temporalities, linear and diachronic. Because we rely so much on questions and answers, we're constantly opening up that interval between self and other that implicates in these two temporalities. So the first temporality, the linear one, is the time it takes to await the response. And the second diachronic one is the sense that what the interval signifies, right, our reliance on each other, has always already been there waiting for us to notice it. So I'm going to use questions and answers from the actual trial to explore the ethical ramifications of the choices that we make when we pose and respond to questions. Um, Spoiler alert, lawyers are not building worlds with their questions. Um, But what if they could? Excuse me. Um, So anyway, those are some of the threads of the book. And I have a sense that the cases are going to speak to each other in some ways. I don't know for certain what all of them are. The book is called Lapse Time so far, because each case I'll discuss features something that we're trained not to see or experience, but that we can still learn to see or experience for the sake of justice if we open our, ourselves up to a different sense of time in legal settings. I'm really looking forward to reading that book. Ah, would you please write it for um, me? Do you think that the time phenomenology <laughs> chapter will make it into this? I hope so. I've got so many notes yeah. from so many years of just sitting in courtroom, and I got a lot of really good things to do, and I just really need to make sure that I actually do it. Right. But I can imagine that also all of that experience of sitting in courtrooms is overwhelming to organize into. Yeah, I really need to figure out which parts, you know, I've got so many notes and some writing already done. And I just need to figure out what the thing is. Um, I'm a slow writer. It took me like five to seven years to write ethical loneliness. Um, But over time, the things 
finally at some point tell me what it is they're trying to do. Sounds kind of mystical, but you know. I I, I feel like maybe we have a similar writing method, so <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to me. It is inefficient, um, but it works for me. It gets you there, yeah. Um, well, Jill, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting. <laughs>